Kung Fu Podcast episode number 168, a primary source of Ming Dynasty martial artists. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Welcome to the program. I hope that you're starting 2019 strong and with a purpose. It's all about getting out of the blocks quick and in the right direction as much as we can. And the first month is almost done. If this is your first time to the program, welcome. You're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that take a great deal of care and put in a bunch of effort to make sure that their craft is honed just the way they want it. Before we get to the stories associated with the primary source of Ming Dynasty martial artists, I want to remind you of a couple of stories. I'm sure you've probably heard of it. One of them actually happened right here uh, down the street from us here in North Carolina. A karate instructor saves a woman's life. The story titled, North Charlotte Karate Instructor Saves Woman from Kidnapper, was posted January 4, 2019. The story was reported that a woman had escaped from an attempted kidnapper as she ran into a karate studio and he chased her in there. And at that point, the instructor took matters into his own hands. The story states that Randall Ephraim, the instructor at the dojo, had been practicing karate for more than 40 years. A woman ran into the Bushikin Karate Dojo on a Thursday evening during a karate class screaming for help. Ephraim said, quote, She was definitely in a panic. She was scared to death. She was highly frightened. End quote. The man, who was later identified by the police as 46-year-old August Williams, came in directly after her. Ephraim states that he asked the gentleman, Hey, what's the problem? And the lady says, well, he's trying to get to me. He's trying to pull me into this truck. Ephraim looks at the guy, asks him to leave repeatedly. August Williams refused and then shoves the karate instructor. And, well, of course, now we have gone past into the realm of physical. Ephraim executed techniques that he describes as being able to first keep him safe, and then second, made sure that the criminal wasn't injured as well. While all this was taking place, people in the studio called 911. Charlotte PD shows up, and August Williams decides that, well, he's not had enough, so he decides he's going to resist arrest as well. And then the officers make sure that he goes into custody, and then he gets hauled off to the hospital. Captain Thomas of the Charlotte PD stated that the suspect was taken primarily to the hospital and that he had believed that uh, Williams had ingested some sort of cocaine or other substance. Williams is now facing charges including assault on a female, attempted kidnapping, possession of drug paraphernalia, and resisting a police officer. The story reminds me that we all practice martial arts and for uh, various reasons across the board. It doesn't matter what style. Some people practice for purely just sport. Some people practice for self-defense and trying to improve their health as well as a philosophical way of life, having some way to work themselves and keeping themselves channeled. But no matter why we practice or what style we practice, being a martial artist sometimes requires that we can step up to just not just protect ourselves, but in this case, 
protect someone else. And doing so in a way that uh, the instructor here executed enough of a force to bring the man into custody, but not so much that he executed the great throat punch in order to make sure that everybody was safe. Uh, to me, that's just perfect. He went as far as he needed to to get the job done, but not too far. Then the next story, as if the first one wasn't a, a tribute to practice in martial arts, was reported by PIX11, Channel 11, titled MMA Fighter Beats Up Would-Be Robber. Now, it starts with simply a question. What's worse than running into a karate dojo while trying to abduct someone? Try robbing an MMA fighter would be just as bad as running into a karate dojo. This happens one week after the guy had ran into the dojo trying to kidnap the woman. UFC President Dana White, when he hears about his 26-year-old Brazilian martial arts fighter, Pollyanna Viana, uh, getting attacked by this criminal, his response is, bad effing idea. Viana stated that she was waiting in front of her apartment, and this suspect, uh, would-be robber, asked her for the time then he asked her to hand over her cell phone, claiming that he had a gun. Well, she decided to call his bluff. She states that, I threw two punches and a kick, he fell, then I caught him in a rear naked choke. Then I set him down in the same place where we were before, and I said, now we'll wait for the police, end quote. Apparently her suspicions about the gun were right. Uh, he actually just had a piece of cardboard in the shape of a firearm in his pocket, and uh, after he was subdued, apparently the criminal had had enough because he was the one telling the passerbys, call the police, call the police, because he was scared that I was going to beat him up some more. Anyway, the suspect was taken to a medical facility for treatment uh, for his injuries, which if you saw a picture of it, he took a pretty good beating, and then uh, straight to the police station where Fiona showed up to file a complaint. In that particular story, the first thing that comes out at me is if you're going to decide to go, then go hard because you're only going to have about a third of a second to make a difference and to change the circumstances to your favor. She apparently took care of all of this matter within a few seconds. And as we said, the criminal was the one asking the people to please call the police so he doesn't take any more of a uh, whipping out there. Now, on my personal life, a couple of things were changing, and I wanted to share those with you. Uh, one, in the same month, I don't know what it was about January of 2019, I have a family member who calls and shows up in the middle of the night in fear for their life. They had uh, apparently met somebody, and then all of a sudden this turned sideways, and they're staying at my house literally in fear until they could somehow get this guy out of the house and all this kind of stuff. You know, it was an interesting scenario, though, because it started off peaceful enough in how the relationship began. But one of the things that came out with that story is that my advice to her as we were talking is that, you know, I had offered to go down to uh, see if I could help escort the guy out of the house, but she preferred to have the local sheriff and all them take care of it. But when, if you ever find yourself in a threatening situation in your own home, because this guy was a visitor, he was a guest, a boyfriend, if you want to call him that. Do not hesitate to take subtle threats as something that you shouldn't respond to. I don't believe that there's any such thing as that sort of uh, hinting. 
You know, it, that's no longer a relationship. The way I usually describe it is that when you go from uh, giving me something that is now a threat or an ultimatum, we're no longer in a relationship. We're in a business situation. Uh, business, business or military situations are usually ended with ultimatums. Either you do this or I'm going to do that. Well, there's not much of a relationship involved in that. She ended up basically taking three or four days to try to get him uh, out, and it has been taken care of. But that took some toll and, as you can imagine, quite a bit of time. Something else that has changed a lot in this past month that many of you have seen in my social media posts is my son, Kian, who's been on this program before many years ago, uh, has blossomed as a high school wrestler. He's still got a ways to go, but he's seen the light, so to speak, that many wrestlers go through. It's during that second year they realize that, oh, okay, this is what I really have to do in order to be good at what it is that they call wrestling or grappling. And this has happened for him, and his mindset has changed, and it's uh, really a big reminder for any of us as martial arts. You can practice all the techniques in the world. You can hustle. My son was hustling. He was in good shape. He's still in great shape. Uh, But the mindset that you take and that you have to have to execute the techniques within the conditioning and confines that you're trying to do it make all the difference in the world. So if you're a great executor of technique, wonderful. If you're in excellent condition, wonderful. But it's going to take a certain mindset to put those two things together in order to really get to the next level. Well, during this process, uh, I've been asked to be one of the assistant wrestling coaches at my son's high school. And with everything going on at first, I was like, well, I'm not too sure, you know, because that's a commitment that I don't take lightly, and I'm sure they don't take it either by offering it. But the other part is that, you know, I was thinking, well, how many dads don't ever really get a chance to spend time watching their son play? And now I'm being asked to uh, have an opportunity to coach on my son's team. Uh, I talked with him about it one-on-one, and he's comfortable with it, and I'm comfortable with it. So uh, we're going to be doing a little bit more of that. But the other thing that it's going to be working with is that the young men are going to be participating here at the martial arts studio uh, and helping some of the martial artists. I mean, if you've never had a uh, 16-year-old trying to take your legs out from underneath you who, you know, who's fast as lightning and can bench 300 pounds, you know, that's a real test. I mean, it's like, oh, okay, you want to get your brown belt right there? No problem. You see that guy? He's going to try to take you down. If you can keep him off of you, you got it. Well, it's anyway, they're wonderful young men, and uh, they're going to be in trying to help me sometimes uh, work with some of the youth and just learning uh, about how to make their bodies move, and I'm excited about it. Uh, I hope that uh, you all will get to see and witness some of that through some of the posts I'm going to make. And let me know if any of you are ever in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, you're more than welcome to stop by here as a, a guest of this uh, martial arts studio. One more thing I want you to know about is that there's a remastered version of the 3D ranking of violence. Now, if you haven't seen that because it was on the older part of the RSS feed, uh, that was three episodes that now has been re-edited into one. It was all around basically a simple question. How many slaps equal one punch? Or better yet, how many times are you willing to be slapped as compared to taking one punch. Now, now if it was 
MMA fighter Pollyanna Viana throwing those punches, you might want to reconsider those statistics about how many times you want to get slapped before you take one of her punches. But it was all based on an article that Agent of Action, friend of the program Ian Abernathy, had written on headbutting and the violence associated with it. What I did is I took his article and we applied it into what was the international research on violence to see how closely simulated that what we believe to be true, how much is it actually true? And it is filled with the acts of violence, the interpretations of violence, the penalties of violence, and the reasons that I would suggest to you to practice perhaps one of the most controversial techniques in martial arts, the headbutt, which is often dismissed as part of a martial arts curriculum. Speaking of martial arts curriculums, I have the Shirite International Conference coming up in April 2019. That's down at Fort Mill, South Carolina. It is a wonderful collection of folks. If you get an opportunity, go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash shirite, and it'll take you right there. Okay, which brings us to a quick refresher of some of the previous episodes. Now, we know that Kublai Khan had a great influence on the southern Chinese martial arts. Why? Because he wouldn't allow weapons in the southern Chinese martial arts that could contend with his army. But he left enough leadway so that the southern Chinese could protect themselves and fight against the bandits, warlords, and the pirates who were coming into the region. Well, after the Yun Dynasty is where it brings us into the Ming Dynasty and episodes number 165, 66, and 67 discusses the arguments that academics are having on these at least two different viewpoints. One of the viewpoints was is that martial arts was greatly influenced by organizations such as the Buddhists and the Taoists. And the other viewpoint, the 180-degree version of it, is that uh, martial arts had nothing to do with any religious section. It was an aspect of village militia and military training. You know that traditional martial arts is not what we would describe as a mainstream culture, right? It is much more of a subculture in our countries, and that's exactly what we had talked about in the previous episodes. It's been that way for a long time. You know, even today, sometimes as martial artists, when we get together, we may feel like we're just a tiny speck inside of a huge global culture. And other times, like when we get put on the pages uh, for help and protect somebody, we feel like we're well-received in the flow of the community. Either way, the culture of a martial artist will be dependent upon the global culture and the movements to which it resides. We have several topics that we've discussed here on the program before. For example, rules of engagement, both in the United Kingdom uh, versus the United States. We have things like here in North Carolina, the Stand Your Ground Law or in other places of the country, it's mandatory to avoid first. We have the 3D ranking of violence that I mentioned before, which were 108 through 110, which is what is considered a level of violence. In Ian Abernathy's article on the headbutt, he reflects on how much violence is associated with the headbutt in the United Kingdom, which again is a reflection of the culture of a country and, and in some cases, across countries. I really do hope you'll listen to the 3D ranking of violence and learn a lot about how we perceive various acts of violence. (laughs) 
Let me now introduce an article from thegreatmilitary.com where we're discussing the Ming army. And this is the one where young men were being sent from the household to meet a state responsibility to literally develop the early martial artists who were going to be, become their soldiers. They write that during the Ming dynasty, quote, Chinese very clearly understood the difference between martial arts that were meant for self-defense, dueling or small-scale fighting, and military training required for a large formation battle, end quote. I can pose a question. What are your perceived differences between a soldier and a martial artist? Is it that, well, soldiers work in groups and formations? Well, then if that would be the case, that would eliminate all the hard work of the group of martial artists who banded together to fight the criminal gang presence. And you could read that article is titled Brazilian Martial Artists from Vigilante Gang to Fight Teenage Beach Thieves. And we actually had this in a previous episode. How about the difference lies in whether or not you work for the government? Well, that one's kind of easily removed because many martial artists have worked for the government often to train the very soldiers that we're discussing. Written documentation goes back almost a thousand years. But the martial artists were not confused as soldiers, even though they were pulling government pay. Well, how about weapons? Soldiers are trained in weapons, martial artists are not. Well, that might be one easy way to differentiate a soldier and a martial artist, depending upon what part of the country or what part of the world you're in. The point of all this is, as Professor Ben Juckin often states, is that we have to be real careful and take our time when we're going to define a martial artist in this particular episode. You know, uh, and it could change. I'm very aware that when someone says the term martial arts or martial artists, I listen further to see how they're going to define it. Because it's important to remember that being a martial artist is usually a subculture to the global culture. So whatever it is that globally dictates what you can or can't do is usually how you're going to define what a martial artist is. On the other side, let there be no confusion. Martial arts plays an integral part of the military, law enforcement, and protective guardian skills, and this has been true throughout time, just like we just talked about in these previous stories. And I believe that martial arts includes combative understanding and training blended in, even if you just say that you're practicing for a healthier body and mind. It's important to practice having a combative component to your training. Which brings me to a book written by Michael Sanyi, published in 2017, The Art of Being Governed. He is a professor of Chinese history at Harvard University, and he's also the director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. His research focuses on the local history of Southeast China, especially in the Ming Dynasty. I had a great time listening to him, and then I got his book, and I've been reading that, and it's, a, it's amazing. One of the things that he points out that we want to be clear on is that practically every country throughout history has had to have an army to protect themselves against invaders. This is a historical truth with very few exceptions. The need to mobilize and train soldiers for the army is inherent upon the state, and it's there, of course, to protect themselves from invaders. 
But that means that there has to be a system inside of that country to do that. Today in the U.S., for example, it is a voluntary service for a, any one of the branches. Martial arts training will be either a small amount or a larger amount of your training, depending upon the selective service that you have decided to go into. If you take a moment and remember the context of the term soldier, remember that terms change, the meanings change throughout time. And what happens, we fall into the trap of when you hear a term, you think of what it is that we think of it. When you think of a soldier today, you think of someone who could easily be, for example, being trained to run a nuclear submarine out in the Pacific somewhere. As compared to the Ming Dynasty, it was very simple. You had a need for horsemen, archers, swordsmen, and spearmen. And that didn't change much for centuries. So during some of the previous podcasts, we talked about social movements. And this particular movement was not really covered because it wasn't a social movement. It was a military movement. This is where we would be guaranteed martial artists and a soldier coming from a household in China during the Ming Dynasty. San Yi's entire book is about the ramification of choices about military mobilization in a single place and a single time period. China's southeast coast during the Ming Dynasty, 1368 through 1644. And it's going to start with the story of the Yan family. The Yan family were registered by the Ming state as a military household. This category of the population provided the core of the Ming army. Well, what did that mean to be a military household? As we stated earlier, every country, empire, and state must have an army. Army means soldiers. Soldiers mean training in combat. During this episode, we're going to explore this institution of military households. But for the moment, know that military households had a permanent hereditary responsibility to supply manpower for military service. That does not mean that everyone in the military household or even every male served as a soldier. Rather, every military household once registered, like the Yan family, carried an obligation to provide a certain number of men, typically one soldier per household, to the army. The Yan's family situation was more complicated. They shared this obligation with another local family, the Shu family, which meant that these two families together were responsible between them for providing a single soldier. Yet it is the Yan family that carries the primary responsibility. Together, the two families made up what is known as a composite military household. In this perspective, Kublai Khan had been ruling since 1258, and his Yun dynasty came to an end in 1368. So we are less than 10 years out of Mongol rule. Around the world, King Edward III was ruling England, and the 100 years war was about 30 years in. Emperor Jokai was being enthroned as the 98th emperor of Japan during this same year. The two families, the Yan and the Shu, were first registered as a military household in 1376. The patriarch of the Yan family, Yang Guantian, took the lead in ensuring that they would meet their service responsibility. He chose his fourth son, Ying Su, to fulfill the military service obligation. 
Ying Su was barely 13 years old. Then he was sent off to faraway Nanjing to serve in the army. He didn't serve very long. He died soon after he had arrived. Young Guantin, per their requirement, dispatched another young son to replace Ying Zhu. This boy, too, only served for a short time, but not due to an untimely death. This boy deserted his post and disappeared. So the Yan family is now two sons down. Yang Guantian had no choice but to find another replacement. He shifted his approach. He ordered the eldest of the six sons to become a soldier. Take a moment, whether you're a martial arts or not. If you're a father, could you imagine having to sit down and decide which one of your sons was going to meet this responsibility? Trying to devise a strategy for the family. And now you have a third son going to the Ming army. In 1381, Yan's eldest son was transferred to distant Hunan in southwestern China. He served there for the rest of his life, never once returning home. When the eldest son died in 1410, 34 years after the first son was sent, the hereditary obligation kicked in again for the fourth time. Yan Guantian, once again still alive, had to choose another son to serve in the army. This son that he chose never even made it to the post. He died somewhere along the journey across the Ming Empire. By the time of Yan Guantian's own death, four of his six sons had served in the army. Three had died or disappeared soon after being conscripted. The only one of the four to survive have lived out his days in a garrison in the distant jungles of the southwest. So for more than a decade, the Yan household slot in the army remained empty without any penalties, likely because the clerks in charge of the paperwork had lost track of them. But then, 1428, facing a serious shortage of manpower, Ming officials renewed their efforts to make up for the number in the ranks. The state was also in a strategic bind about how to use this system of getting soldiers from their population into the army and getting them trained. Some of the officials believed that assigning soldiers to posts that were so far away from their ancestral homes was a large part to blame for the shortage of soldiers. They were just not showing up. New soldiers were falling ill on the journey or dying while they were en route to their post, as what happened with uh, two of Yang Guantian's sons. Others, like the third son, just deserted because they had been separated forever from their family. Well, the army responded with a policy that we might call a voluntary disclosure program, which in order to help overcome this shortage of soldiers, what they did is they said, look, if any man is liable for military service and has left but will come forth willingly, the conscription authorities assured that he would not be sent far away from his home and that he would be stationed close to his home. Actually, one of Yang Guantian's younger kin took advantage of the policy. He presented himself to the authorities, and just as they promised, he was duly assigned to a station in nearby Quanzhou. By the time that this young man had died a decade later, the Yan family had been fulfilling their military obligations for more than 60 years. At the time of his death, there were no Yan family sons of an age to serve, 
so the responsibility now devolved to the other half of the composite military household, the Shu family. Over the course of the next century, four members of the Shu family served one after the other. The need for soldiers on the borders eventually became a dire set of circumstances, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go along, and we have discussed whole episodes associated with pirates and other problems. Well, what happens is, is the voluntary disclosure policy lapsed. The next soldier conscripted from the Shu family was sent all the way back to the military household's original assignment in the jungles of the Southwest. Both the Yan and Chu families were really trying to make sure that this son stayed on the job. Desertion was a real serious problem for both the Ming army and equally for the military household who were going to have to replace the deserter. So let's take a moment and give ourselves some idea of where these young men were being sent. I mean, the first kid was 13 years old, and for what? Today, we have seminars at nice hotels and gyms. We get to go on online classes or pretty much anything under the sun, including the magic chi classes that you can get on how to do whatever with the magic finger, right? It doesn't matter. This is not, you know, like some dire set of circumstances that we go to get trained in. If you were a Ming dynasty man conscripted to the Ming army that was approximately 1.2 million strong in the 13th and 14th century, you were going to be sent to training. And this was just prior to General Chi Chi Kong's tr entire training system. But it still had a lot of martial qualities. And to discourage further desertion, the Shu and Yan family worked out an arrangement to give each new conscriptive son a payment of silver and cloth. Purportedly, this was to cover the conscripted son's expenses, you know, traveling and foods and things like that. However, it was all about persuading him to stay in the army. Unfortunately, that didn't work. Repeatedly, the young men would desert the army, and repeatedly, Ming officials would descend on the two families to, to demand a replacement. By 1527, more than 150 years after they were initially given the obligation to serve in the military, remembering that this started in 1376, the two families had grown tired of the uncertainty. I want to point out to you that on your timeline, this is about the same time that the future General Chichigong is born, whose family was also bestowed a different type of military and martial arts position the commander-in-chief of a garrison. This was presented to the Qi family when Xu Yongzhang became the founding emperor of the Ming dynasty. Well, the Xu and the Yan's family responsibility wasn't a gift, and it certainly wasn't for commander-in-chiefs to be born and enrolled. They were struggling to raise and get out there into the field the future white and yellow belts and had been doing so for the past century. And these guys were sent out into very harsh and harmful conditions. Their children were being sent out to one of three training stations, and then they would rotate through them. They were beginners who would learn the fundamentals first of martial arts, combat in another station, cavalry and weaponry in another. Many times these young men would desert the army, leaving their family the burden of sending another son. So, once again, the military households of the Yan and Shu wanted to find a more long-term solution. Together, they drew up a simple contract. 
the terms of which still survive in the Jan's genealogy, the lineage package. The soldier, a man named Xu Shangzhang, agreed to remain in the army for the rest of his life. And the contract literally reads, it is his duty to die in the ranks. The Yan family agreed to pay him for the security of knowing that he was fulfilling their shared obligation. But this solution was less than permanent than they had hoped. In 1558, the soldier Shu came back from Hunan with a new proposal. He had now been serving in the army for more than 60 years, and he wanted out. On our timeline by now, this is the period that General Chijigong was handling the pirate infestation, developing the oldest Chinese martial arts training manual that we have to this day and training civilians how to protect themselves from the bandits and the pirates. Well, the soldier Xu Zhangzhang, had been serving for 60 years, offered that he would commit his immediate family and his direct descendants to take on the burden of providing a conscript in perpetuity in exchange for regular payments. Shang Zhang's eldest son would replace him and then his grandson after that. The effect would be to free the Yan family of the hereditary service responsibility, converting a labor obligation into a monetary one. So as long as they kept up their payments, the Yan family would never again have to fear the arrival of a conscription official seeking to drag one of them off to the wars. This new contract that the families prepared was much more elaborate than the previous version. Its terms, also recorded in the genealogy, covered not only the arrangement between the two families, but also the Yan family's internal arrangements for how they would raise the money to pay the soldier Shu and his descendants. Almost 200 years have passed since Yang Guantang's family was first registered as a military household. The descendants of the 14th century patriarch now numbered in the hundreds. They formed what we could call a lineage. The contract specified that each man in the lineage would make a small annual contribution to a general fund, technically a capitation charge, that would be paid at regular intervals to the soldier who was out in the far southwest. There must have been great relief for the family members have been resolved for this long-standing military concern. However, the story was still not over. 25 years after his last contract was made, approximately 1585, Shang Zhang's grandson returned to the ancestral home, complaining that the payments were not adequate enough and demanded that the contract be renegotiated. The Yan family thought they had no choice but to agree. They raised the charge to cover the new higher costs. And then in 1593, the story comes to a close with the author, Yang Kumei, making strong encouragements to his kin to be reasonable and to meet any future demands from the Shu family, where he writes that if the serving soldier should ever come back demanding more money, he must be received with courtesy and treated with generosity that there will be no disaster in the future. Yan's final appeal may have never been tested, for shortly afterwards, the Ming Dynasty would fall, replaced by a new regime with a much different approach to military mobilization. In closing, Professor Sanyi writes, the last author, quote, Yan Kamei, was an educated man 
a successful graduate of the examination system, and a state official. But his text was not written from the perspective of a scholar or a bureaucrat. It is neither philosophical rumination nor policy analysis. It is an internal family document, included in the Yon genealogy and intended primarily for internal consumption. Although, as I will discuss here in a moment, Jan was very mindful of the prospect that it might one day be read by a judge. It explains and justifies the arrangements that the family developed over the course of more than two centuries, almost as long as the dynasty whose demands they sought to accommodate. End quote. Well, if you're asking why am I bringing you this piece of work, well, first of all, it's something I really enjoyed and I learned a lot from. And the second is that oftentimes I believe that we can forget in our analysis of learning certain things that we can forget the context when we're making the assessment. Uh, for example, one time, one of my favorite football coaches of all time, Bill Parcells, was asked about his quarterback, Drew Bledsoe, who had a couple of bad games. And the reporter says, uh, you know, what, what are you going to do? He's not playing very well. Uh, what did you think about his poor performance today? And Bill Parcells responds, did you watch the game? Do you understand the game of football? Our defense couldn't stop them, so we were playing behind and in a one-dimensional passing game trying to catch up. Second of all, our left tackle had one of his worst games ever, and our third problem was is that our running backs couldn't break a single tackle. Nothing happens in a vacuum out there. Overall, I thought Drew had a pretty good game considering the situation that he was in. Chinese martial arts is also much more than colorful names and fancy techniques and hard-to-follow poetic-like writing. As we have pointed out in several episodes, our early martial arts predecessors could have easily been found roaming in at least one of three primary social movements during the early imperial period. Particularly, we focused on the Ming period. We noted during those podcasts the cult of piety, the movement to the cities, and the return of the recluse, all of which we looked at historical examples of the martial arts where they were living in these cultural streams. Yet, we know that these martial arts were not just created. They had to be trained. For example, the needle and cottonseed style, better known today as Tai Chi Chuan, was developed by Chen Wanting, a local military commander, as well as there was a deep influence from General Chi Chi Kong and General Yu Dai Yao. The Ming military development of martial arts started with their conscription. Whether there were military households sending in their untrained sons to start from scratch, or if they were honored officers grooming their sons to replace them in a garrison one day. Though many may say that a military organization doesn't count as a social movement, I would argue that such a system, a military culture that was thrusted upon the civilians, estimated one out of every five households, was a different form of culture and definitely one that impacted civilian lives, just as we heard about in the Yan and Shu families. We have also looked again during this episode of how invented lineages are part of the art. We see it unfortunately all too often where some grand master has written out a lineage with all the details that makes out what he wants it to look like for the people who are around them. He may omit people who trained there for years just because they wouldn't kiss his butt, 
or they may include people who barely train there because of getting access to a bigger market. It touches on this because it gives this Grand Master some form of clout. Lineage writing is as much of an art as it is a fact, but we don't hold the martial artists as the source of this art. It didn't happen in a vacuum either. Just as Professor Sun Yi discusses that in an interview of how he sat down, he was very complex as he was looking over this lineage line that he was reading, this genealogy, he's going through it, and he's struggling to try to make sense of a portion of the lineage. And it was great to hear him because he says, then all of a sudden an old man walks in and he shows mercy upon him. The old man says, in Chinese of course, you're struggling way too hard to understand this. This section here that you're looking at was totally made up. It was created to give a hint that certain relationships were made in case a government official of the Ming Dynasty wanted the short version of why this household was not providing its soldier for training. So the culture developing a invented lineage was long before the martial artists started doing it. Let us not forget that there were other significant resources of martial arts being developed during this time period, and some of them were not military. Some of them you might think of as being paramilitary. Uh, they were part of the civilian mainstream as well. For example, creating village militias to help uh, keep the bandits out. But there were also the monastic warriors, which Professor uh, Mayer Shahar has just uh, authorized me to release a whole volume of work, an audio volume of work that he had printed at the uh, Harvard Press. And I'm very excited about that. But in this work, I wanted to think about for a moment what it might take during this time period to fulfill the responsibility that the Ming Dynasty had placed upon these families to send basically the yellow belts and the white belts of the future to be trained in different realms of the martial arts and then also in uh, soldiering. And as I bring this episode to a close, remember to study your art and understand what it is that you do in context. It is supposed to change through the course of time. You might want to avoid making modern decisions on historical events and vice versa. Do your work, soak in your work, in your place, in your time, and do the very best you can. I hope I see you at the Shurite Bujitsu Kai International Conference. If you'd like to support this program, you go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash support, and I look forward to talking with you again real soon.